Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and for all of the feedback that you've been giving me so far in 2022. The rips that have been dropping have been epic because the guests have been amazing. We've had Marty Bent on and then followed up by Laser Hoddle, who bought down the house, to be honest. And it was a nice combination to, to do that one-two because Marty had kind of introduced everybody to Laser. But today, we have a, we have a plebisode, a, a Bitcoin pleb by the name of Jake who started his own Bitcoin podcast alongside a couple of other of his mates down under, who joins me to talk about his day-to-day fiat life because he works in the shipping industry. And we wanted to do a deep dive on how that works and give the plebs an idea of exactly what's going on out there and piece together all of these macro pieces in your mind. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one. Maybe we'll do more like this in the future where plebs come on and share their day-to-day and, uh, and their insights and um, their, their careers uh, because it's um, we're a thirsty bunch looking for a lot of knowledge, that's for sure. Before we do the show, make sure you check out the show sponsors. Hit up the show notes because all the links are there to all of these companies. If you're in the US, use Swan Bitcoin to start stacking your sats. Best team out there. They've got you covered. Across Europe, we are spoke for choice. You can use coincorner.com. They've got you covered across all of Europe. You also have Bitcoin Reserve now, who are hitting it out of the park. You can stack with them daily, or you can tie on a nice large position, 50,000 pounds or euros or more, and you'll get a handheld white glove service. Relay, or a stacking app, R-E-L-A-I is how that's spelled. Download the app and start stacking, and use a Bitcoin wallet, the Bitcoin O2 by Shift Crypto, Shift Crypto ch forward slash bitten will save you five percent and if you want to get to miami beach and hang with a bunch of crazy bitcoiners 6th to the 9th of april in miami of course because miami beach 2022 whatever nice shield then use the code bitten at checkout to get 10 percent off your tickets here's jake all right jake we're recording joining the uh, the ones bitten is uh podcast is jake woodhouse fellow pleb from uh, across the shores uh based in australia mate yeah Correct. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me along. No problem. And as we were just recording pre-record, we were talking about your, your own pod that you've been inspired to start with uh, with the lads, Jigs and Matt, right? I, I think. Yeah, uh, correct. Yeah. Excellent. And I was, uh, you, you graciously invited me on. That was that was wonderful. And you've since upstaged me with Jeff Booth. So uh, you know, <laughs> it's going well. Yeah, no, um, we started the podcast at the back end of last year about I don't know, three or four months ago, and three guys kind of united in their interest in Bitcoin from different parts of the world. Jig's actually South African. I'm from the UK originally, and Maddie's from Australia, but we all live in Oz. So I'm based over here. The show is called We're So Bloody Early, which we thought was a good reflection on really the most important point to get across to all friends and family, which is don't worry about what the price is today. Get involved. And in the years to come, you'll be like, that was a great idea. 
Um, so we hope that kind of comes through in the title. And yeah, as you said, Jeff Booth very kindly graced us with his presence just recently. And he was um, personally someone I've really looked up to in the last 12 months or so that pumps out excellent content, has wonderful insights from his career as an entrepreneur. And it's specifically that technology lens that he has that's so interesting. And his main, I guess, insight being an inflationary monetary policy in conjunction with deflationary technology forces are never going to function long-term for the benefit of the system. Um, and yeah, so listening to him chat was great. You should, you should hundred percent get him on, on the once bitten pod because uh, all the people that are listening to your show would love to hear his background and, and what he thinks about the whole world. Yeah. He's um, he has been gracious enough to, to come on before. So he's, um, oh, you have had him before. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's given up uh, plenty of his time. He's done the rounds. He's been uh, a great ambassador for uh, you know the, the Bitcoin community, and he was very much taken aback by how the Bitcoin community reached out to him. You know, a few people read his book earlier, and like he started appearing on a few podcasts, and then he was just embraced as as one of us. And he was, um, yeah, very very kind of um, surprised by that because I think he mentioned the word Bitcoin once in the book. The um, you know the, the whole time, amazing guy, uh, really really kind of it just connected so much for me that we've been missing like this idea of deflation is just inevitable and we've been fighting it ever since 1971 basically uh and what a pointless battle that is mm. there's no well, especially when there's now a, a there's now a tool a monetary tool that is deflationary itself it makes the the inflationary monetary system even more pointless um yeah it's a mockery it's, really it just exposes it's, it's just it mental what is going on daniel everywhere when you start seeing it for what it is you just see it everywhere um the yeah the thing that i'd love to kind of highlight i guess about jeff the most is um i so i built a small website called bitcoinwithjake.com and on there I thought I'd done a lot of research and I've calculated the total minutes of the content on there. And it's actually only 250 hours. I was like, God, experts have done 10,000 hours. That's actually so much work. And there's probably a whole heap of stuff that doesn't count, but um, the total cost of all of the content on there is, you know, it's a combination of podcasts, YouTubes, articles, books. Um, I reckon like no more than 200 bucks. And that's mainly on paying for books from authors. Um, and you think, wow, isn't that incredible how cheap, what? In a way, like the Bitcoin conviction I have today is built on a lifetime of different touch points and experience. But th this like small uh, microcosm of it is just so cheap to learn. And someone like Jeff has put this book out there. It costs you 20 bucks. And you get a view of the world that his entire lifetime's helped build. And you think, isn't that incredible how you can collect information together like this and utilize it for your own, in many ways, selfish benefits, um, or at least in, initially when it comes to storing wealth and trying to protect it for the long term. It's not for anyone else. It's for me and my kids and you know their kids. Um, and so someone like Jeff is incredible in terms of his ability to not only convey this view of the world that helps us understand it, but then also is willing to share his time. Like, how cool is that? A couple of tweets, you become Twitter friends, and then you can reach out and much like this call, start chatting. And um, yeah, it's a really incredible time that we live and that it's possible to do. Yeah, it truly is. And at the same time that this is going on, we're, we're being strangled, you know, knee on the neck, foot on the face. 
by our uh, governments around the world that are trying to stop us from uh, even going to work, you know, what, what with uh, the lockdowns and um, yeah. curfews and whatever else, which is just completely mental. And you, I mean, what, what's going on at the moment? We're, we're about, um, you, you don't well, have I was to gonna say, so you are, but what was the was, state? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Melbourne myself. So mm -hmm. funny enough, I moved, so my wife's from, from Melbourne, the world's most livable city, seven years in a row or whatever it was. Who comes and up I with moved here in December of 2019. Uh, Loz was pregnant at the time. We moved into a property that we're still in now, but you know we might move. But um, by March, the the coronavirus you know scamdemic had kicked off globally, and you know part of you is terrified. Your wife's pregnant. What happens if you get this thing? Will the baby die? Will the wife die? You don't know, right? And obviously, as time goes by, you start to think about what's actually going on and certainly for our personal um journey it's been a case of like well none of this makes any sense and i mean before we go too far down this covid rabbit hole melbourne has been one of the most locked down cities in the world so mm -hmm. 300 days we were incarcerated in our own homes that's rules like you're allowed to leave the house for one hour a day you can only go to essential shops um some people's work was deemed essential other people's wasn't there was a big government scheme to give people uh what was called job keeper but guess what loads of people didn't fit the bracket right there was a whole lot of sole traders out there or um you know entrepreneurs that didn't fit the, the the normal bill of course big capital in terms of like the supermarket chains the construction sites all the labor unions these guys were all still going the whole way through you know, oh, the virus isn't so dangerous for them. Don't worry, they, they, the construction guys can keep going, you know. And so there's this ludicrous um, ineptitude on behalf of policymakers to obviously favour people that help them and those that don't, they don't care about them, yet everyone's supposed to foot the bill. And, and you're right, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that we can have amazingly open and free conversations with people all around the world, yet at the same time we live in this situation in which government's becoming more and more like invasive like and what's interesting in a sense we've been a bunch of protests i mean literally probably 10 15 protests the last year or so and and mainly really pro-freedom anti-lockdown like leave us alone and at the core of it is these vaccination mandates and the idea that some people's work is essential and some people's isn't and it's like that that's not who gets to decide that and actually, at the same time, if you have decided that, why? There's no publicly available data. Oh, we take the best advice. Okay, well, what is it? They won't tell anyone. Okay, who did the cost-benefit analysis for lockdowns? Where is the proof? This is an amazing guy that I've listened to a lot called Sanjeev Sablok, who's an economist in the Victorian government here. And he resigned. And as a, a lifelong public servant, he explained that what he was seeing was to his to his mind completely despicable and there were public servants within what is the the government civil service of um of victoria that have been completely negligent and they're like where is the the proof that you guys are making the right decisions based on the community and they don't release their data and you just think what is going on here meantime you're stuck in your house for 300 days so this is a big ramble but um, long story short, Melbourne has turned out to be a complete disaster in terms of moving here as a young family. My daughter was born in the bedroom next door. We had a home birth, which was pretty epic. Um, but my mother-in-law was outside of the five kilometer radius, which you weren't allowed to travel more than during the lockdown. So they had 
let me try and reel them off. So yeah, you're allowed at your house once a day for essential central reasons. You couldn't go further than five kilometers from your front door. Um, you obviously have to be masked literally everywhere. Um, and there was curfew. So from 9 p.m. at night till nine o'clock or whatever, or six o'clock in the morning, you can't be outside your house, like full stop. Um, some of these protests that we went to, the... <laughs> The policing of it was insane. You had these people turn up who were in full riot police kit, who were ag aggressively um, arresting everyone for breaking the five kilometer chief health officer rule. And so you're like, okay, so this is a bunch of people that are protesting the government. The week before the Black Lives Matter protest happened and people were celebrating it, right? Nothing's changed. Cases haven't changed. The rules are still in place, but Oh, one rule for one group, one rule for everyone else. And so it's just this ludicrous um, juxtaposition. As you said, not only are we able to chat like this online and exchange information about how we've been treated, but equally like none of these policies make much sense. And when you really follow the money, it's like, okay, well, now it's pretty bloody obvious why this is happening. Um, what's scary is where's it going? We don't know. CBDCs. Keep keep following the money. <laughs> it's uh, it, it that's where it goes. Um, I'm just getting an unstable connection. You can still hear me, okay? Yeah, I can. Yeah, pause for a second, but okay. Yeah, yeah. CBDCs, mate. Yeah, if you like um, this meme, follow the money. It's it's a meme for a reason. It's nothing new. All you got to do is follow the money, take a few short steps, a few internet searches, and uh, yeah, it's amazing the shit you'll find out. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it all leads to this this idea of the CBDC and social credit score system, and mm -hmm. it's um, it's not conspiracy anymore. <laughs> like it's this is no, what they I want. Mean, to give to give her a due, my wife was a good six months ahead of me in terms of where she saw the whole thing going. And I was like, no, that can't be true. That nah, they wouldn't do that. Well, still in this kind of quite like um, altruistic headspace. Um, and, and that's become like so stupid, basically, where you're, you're, you're pretending it's not going on. Your ignorance is bliss. You only have to listen to Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCulloch chatting to Joe Rogan to go, right, of course, this all makes much more sense. The funny bit being, and I'm not going to call them out completely, a very, very close family member of mine, I tried to share one of those podcasts with, and they refused to even listen to it, mm. which I do find fascinating as well, right? It's, it's Joe Rogan. He's one of the most famous podcasters in the world. So, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to listen to that. And they send you back a, a Google search, which is titled, you know, Peter McCulloch COVID um, debunking. And it's like, okay, so The Independent wrote an article with that headline. Have you read the actual content of The Independent article? No. Okay. It's three hours of heavily cited insight. Why didn't you just try it? Oh, no, I'm not going to do it. Sorry. I'm not going to engage with you on this. Yeah, no, he's oh. been debunked. The fact checkers. And in a way, it's like trying to orange pill people into Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, mate, you need to pay attention. Nah, it's a scam. You need to pay attention. Oh, it's a scam. No, no. Um, and I still haven't, I guess, worked out the best tactic. Like these podcasts are obviously excellent, right? But way of connecting with people globally that have, have realized the same thing or believe the same vision. Um, 
And it's that whole phrase of like, you can't lead a horse to water. Do you know what I mean? So, okay, how do you lure this person into thinking about it? And I think the best rationale I've come across is like, what problem are you going to solve for them? So Bitcoin solves lots of problems, whether it's international money transfer, whether it's, you know, inflation protection, whether it's simply the fact that you're unbanked, there'll be a number of different things that are like a burning problem for said individual. And so then it's kind of a case of trying to think about what is it that you can solve for them? Um, yeah. Anyway, ongoing one. It's hard to um, it's hard to hit on the exact the exact uh, recipe, isn't it? I'm sure you've tried many times. Oh, hundreds, hundreds. And, and you're right. Uh, it is, and I'm sure everybody's kind of molded their own kind of approach. Um, mine was always bad. Uh, it was like, no, you got to do this. You got to buy Bitcoin. You got, you know, look at this, blah blah blah. And that would never work. Now, yeah, you, you just got to sit and listen and, and find that pain point. And once you realize, right, okay, that's that particular person's pain point, just asking questions around that pain point and taking them a little bit deeper and then trying to steer it. It's, it's a skill, though. It's, it's, it's like sales, I suppose. At the end of the day, we're, we're trying to sell them on, on an idea that we know can solve their problem, mm. but they're not just going to buy, you know, that they've got to, to see it for themselves. Um, and it's a slow, it's a slow, slow process because it's money. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, it's funny, isn't it? Don't trust verify such mm -hmm. an interesting design feature, but actually there is still a huge element of trust involved. I wouldn't have the conviction I have now had I not, you know, whatever it was five or six years ago, gone, listened to a friend of mine and, and bought some Bitcoin. You know, I've still owned some of it. I've got rid of most of it, doing stupid stuff with it, which is what also most people have done. Um, but it's only through going, oh my God, it's still there, that you do then build a bit of trust, don't you? And actually, it, it strikes me of, um, I spent some time in the startup space and uh, specifically building or trying to build VC-backed digital products. And... Um, the the problem solution statements like a critical part of that especially at an idea stage and it's then about going out and doing customer research and proving your problem and so we did a lot of work around um well first of all the analogy of you need to find someone whose hair's on fire and they're trying to put it out with a brick and you turn up with a bucket of water they're going to pay you for that they're going to pay you for that way more than they're going to pay you for another brick for example so whatever problem it is you're trying to solve you have to find something that's as serious as someone having their head literally on fire and if you don't find a hair on fire problem then even if you provide a solution they might not pay you for it and so uh, when you go out and conduct customer research you try and ask them as many um, unbiased questions as possible about whatever their you know whatever task they're trying to achieve you say you know in this case podcasting how do you find podcasting, Dan? Oh, it's great. Oh, but this, you know, you suddenly you're complaining about something. Oh, can you tell me more about that? Suddenly you go down this little hole. So that that same type of digital product customer um, discovery process, you could apply to Bitcoin really well, actually. Um, and you get lots of different answers. I mean, I noticed uh, you, you've done 200 or so podcast episodes now. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Epic. So in many ways, those are 200 conversations in which you've been able to kind of spar with people and to understand like what problem they had and, and what brought them to this point. 
Um, and in, in a sense, I'm sure if I went back and listened to all of it, you could probably come up with numerous digital product ideas that people are already talking about as having problems with. They just hadn't realized that it could be solved. It's yeah, yeah it, it's very, very true. Cool. And, and everybody loves, I mean, I listen to loads of Bitcoin podcasts still myself and everybody loves that rabbit hole story, you know, that that's um, because what was their pain point? What brought them in? Why did they start looking at this? Was it like mine or was it like someone else's that I know that this is, they've come in this way or, um, and it's that, that we were just inquisitive by nature, right? Like, um, especially the Bitcoin plebs, you know, mm -hmm. they, they get lit up by this kind of process of discovery. Uh, and it's, um, it's just a great space to be in and, and to be part of. Um, and the reason you and I, well, I reached out to you to do this chat was because when I was on your pod, we got talking a little bit about um, like your work in, in the shipping industry um, mm -hmm. and understanding how that works and how supply chains work and how you've seen like uh, the consequences of these global shutdowns. And, and I know the plebs just, they love all this kind of stuff, right? You know, the, this kind of macro uh, level idea and, and to bring somebody on, I might start doing a series of, of this, you know, just getting to know what uh, a Bitcoin pleb who's, um, you know, entrenched still in the in a in a fiat role in a fiat job just explaining what they do day to day and what they see and how like the last uh, 18 months or so has affected the in, the unintended consequences and, and things like that so if if you're up for doing that i think it'd be really interesting for the plebs to uh, to, to tune in and yeah and no to... for sure i can talk for hours to be honest so i have to think carefully <laughs> about which direction to go in because and yeah to take a step back in a sense I love talking to people about their stories to Bitcoin. Their journeys are all unique. And really, that's a lot of what Bitcoin podcasts are all about, is, is highlighting a, an individual who's been through a set of life experiences that ends up at a point going, ha, huh, this is obviously going to be the future. How do I help it? And how do I protect my wealth? And okay, cool, let's go. Um, and, and just on that, in my particular case, the it's a bit of a sad start to the story but my father died when i was 20 years old and i grew up in the south of the uk we had a beautiful home that had been my grandfather's and his father's before that and effectively we couldn't afford it any longer didn't want my mum living in dad's tomb because he died literally you know on on the farm or whatever so we sold up and i inherited money as a young man which is uncommon and so for someone who's my age to be deploying capital it's most of my mates' parents are only 60. You know, they're not going to get any money until, you know, another 30 years or something, maybe. So it's a long time till they'll be making any major decisions aside from, you know, perhaps getting on the property ladder or whatever. Um, and so for 10 years, I've been investing in different assets using different tools. So, for example, wealth managers, helping to invest in public markets, buying bonds, you know, currencies, commodities, stocks. Um, then I did some early stage um, angel investing myself as well. So looking for startups, um, which incidentally this weekend I got my first exit from, which is cool. Not oh. enough to cover the whole, um, the whole deployed funds yet, but uh, three and a half X on the original investment in under three years, which is pretty cool. Um, obviously, cryptocurrencies is a part of this as well. Um, and physical real estate. And there's just so many problems with a lot of those traditional tools that Bitcoin, you're like, hang on, 
So all I've got to do is buy Bitcoin. And so all of this stress and effort that I've been going through to basically protect what I was given, this, this, this stored energy that was, you know, kept in a house for 85 years suddenly was liquidated. And you're like, well, how do I protect it? And of course, inflation is a problem, but you don't want to, you don't know how to invest. How do I, how do I do this? Okay, I'm going to farm the responsibility out to someone else who sells you a dream, takes a fee and doesn't necessarily share in any upside or downside. Um, and so that's kind of compressed story. But uh, for me, the, the journey to Bitcoin has been fascinating in terms of trying different other tools to protect what I was given and realizing that the best way of doing it is literally just to buy and hold Bitcoin. And that's also because I was lucky to buy some in 2015 and have experienced the ups and downs during that time sold some to buy a classic car, sold some to go on holiday with my now wife, sold some to go traveling, um, you know, the, the hard fork in 2017, oh, the whole thing's going to fail, get rid of it, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, I bought a 40-year-old car with Bitcoin cash when it forked. I had, you know, a bunch of these. I was like, well, I don't want that. I found this guy willing to sell for crypto on eBay. Turned out to be a rapper called Black the Ripper. Met him up in Enfield in a car park. And you're like, what are we doing here? We spent three hours in the car park sending 0 0.001 of a Bitcoin cash using Binance. Like, it would be quicker with cash, right? It just It was that early. It didn't make any sense. Um, so I made awesome. a load of mistakes. Come on, we, we need more of this story. That, that's, that's awesome. Like, what, what was the car, first of all? Uh, so it's a 1980s um, Mercedes SL. So mm -hmm. the three door, it's like the, the same car out of the, um, the Godfather, but it was, it was in black. I loved it. It was awesome. Um, it smelled of petrol, the, the roof leaked. Um, it, it drove like terribly. And like the day I picked it up, I drove it back to Earl's Court where I was living at the time <clears throat> and parked it in the local Tesco's car parks and have a par parking permit for it. You know, sided on back home, babe, got a car and, um, you know, went to pick it up the next morning to do something with it battery is dead you know straight away <laughs> like the classic car like oh god i can't believe it what a surprise um and i didn't have another car at the time so i was trying to drive around on a day-to-day -day basis with a 40 year old mercedes and it just was a yeah anyway i sold it about three months later for i think about five or six hundred quid less than what i'd paid in 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 digital currency version um and then the market crashed and so actually it was like i almost got a free car essentially the whole thing was quite funny um but the idea now of exchanging a a, a scarce asset like bitcoin the scarcest thing man's ever been able to own that you are the sole owner of like you got your own keys no one else can take that fact um for a 40 year old car that wasn't unique and was basically ready to go to the junk heap like Oh no, but, but somehow those are the, those are the really formative times where you, you begin to understand what the value is of what, what's been built. And, you know, it's, it's a new invention, Bitcoin. We don't know, we don't know anything about it. It's at the very earliest of stages. So it's funny. Those yeah, that is a funny story in the end, isn't it? Those Bitcoin cash days were weird, man. Like I had no idea what was going on. I was not following it. Uh, you know, it was all noise. I was nowhere near down the deep down the rabbit hole as uh, as I should have been, I suppose. You know, it was just that usual journey. It sounds like we've had, uh, you know, experienced uh, the same thing, found it about the same time, started fiddling around with it. And I, I think it was a couple of years later that I suddenly realized I had 
a bunch of Bitcoin cash sat in a Coin Heiko account in Singapore, right? Because mm. this is I, I set it all up uh, via um, my Singapore bank account, and I was like, hey, "What is what is this shit like?" Actually, you know, like I don't I don't ever remember buying this, and that's how I really kind of started to understand like the the whole fork wars and ah oh, okay, so I was just awarded it at a certain point yeah. on a certain yeah. day. All right, well, what's it worth now? Okay, I don't know, whatever. Just switched it back into Bitcoin and managed to get yeah. everything out of CoinHeco before I was locked out of that account because I wow. couldn't that they switched it. Apparently, I had to have a Singaporean SIM card to receive the 2FA or the, the SMS or something. Yeah. Otherwise, I was completely locked out of the account. Luckily, I'd flushed everything away from it. Um, so, wow. but yeah, now, now you're buying a 40 year old car in Enfield with Bitcoin cash, like and yeah. it's taking three and a half hours to, to do this with, with a rapper. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, he turned up, I, I, I forget his, his, his first name, but um, I mean, stank of weed, right? Straight away. You're like, okay, what's this guy been up to? And he, and he ends up literally sparking up right in the car park with his mate. And they had a whole load of um, merch in the back of their van. And he had a brand called Dank of England. And he had a big Instagram. He's actually dead now, believe it or not. My mate sent me an article recently and he died over in Jamaica. But yeah, he was a lovely bloke. And he had he had five classic cars sitting in this car park close to what must have been his recording studio. And, and they were like, you know, old Beamers, old Mercs. And yeah, he just was on eBay. He's like, I wanted to sell them. And he said at the bottom of his, of his advert, you know, willing to exchange for crypto. And I'm like, perfect. Let's just dump this Bitcoin cash on this guy. And, um, and get myself a car that I've thought about, you know, as a pretty cool car for a long time. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. What, what are you doing with a 40-year-old car, mate? You need to have, you know, in a garage, you need to get it done up properly so it actually works. Like the idea you can do it as a runaround, like I didn't even, I didn't even realize any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. so I, I guess one thing I learned is if I'm ever going to own classic cars again, it needs to be in a place where it's stored, you know, looked after, and it's like you drive it once a month, maybe, and it's not your, you know, everyday runaround. Um, yeah, this it's funny you mentioned that about bit. your account in Singapore. Like, it's yeah. just so bad, isn't it, when you consider that it's your money. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me how to get in and out of my account for my own purposes or whatever. Let me do what I want with my own money. And it's, yeah. just, you know, just another one of the reasons why I see um, such a different future in the financial space. And it needs to change because, as you said, you know, as a young man, you come into that money and you've been searching, searching, just not not to just to protect it. Right. You're not yeah. tying on punts and risks and right. Yeah, let's fucking go yeah. and try and, you know, no. You, but then you're forced. What, what's happening to a lot of people out there has happened for the last 50 years. You're forced into things like believing a classic car is a store of value or believing mm -hmm. a watch is a store of value or believing mm -hmm. you know wine fine wine is a store of value all of these random things that are consumer goods at the end of the day mm -hmm. you know a watch is to tell the time a car is to get you from a to b and you know wine is to drink or it's just gonna go off and spoil and for all of these things that you're trying to place value in you have to spend a lot of money in the first place. Then you have to spend a lot more money on upkeep or storage uh, or, you know, cleaning or whatever else. And they all just end up being a money and time sink. Mm. But when you try it's and explain to people that Bitcoin is a total op opposite to that. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to, 
well, the difficulties, of course, is getting deep enough conviction to actually put, you know, you're not putting a hundred bucks in from, you know, not going to the pub. You're talking about putting a, a serious amount of value in there that if it, if it disappeared, actually that's your inheritance gone. If sure. you were to get to this stage, I'm thinking of getting too soon. And it, it requires a lot of research on your own behalf to, to become comfortable with it as a concept. Um, and I still think there's opportunities entrepreneurially, frankly, for almost like concierge services. So I, I've used Unchained Capital and their multi-sig product, which they've been great, um, but almost like a level above that, right? So where people who normally would be paying 1% a year to some wealth manager who's you know spent years of their life becoming CFA registered and all the rest of it, um, you know, could you, you make a Bitcoin concierge product that still charges 1% a year? that the gains are better than any wealth manager will ever create using the traditional stock market. Um, and you know that it's not going to disappear and you still access it. So that's definitely a, a concept I've been thinking through. And there's a couple of companies I have seen that are, are building stuff out around that kind of idea. Um, yeah, it's, it is, it's a fascinating future we see ahead of us from a perspective of looking after um, wealth. And I, I believe that it's, it's just a rational decision at the end of the day to everyone will end up at this same point. The fact is you might've seen it five years ahead of everyone else and excuse me, um, or more. And therefore in hindsight, you might look clever to have done it, but really it wasn't, it just, it's rational, right? This is the, the obvious thing to do. Um, there's something else I was going to mention that, yeah. So you, you mentioned your Singaporean account that got blocked or whatever. I had the same problem with Nat West in the UK. I was trying to send funds from um, basically from a, I liquidated a wealth management portfolio into, into cash, into my NatWest account. And I was trying to send it to um, what was CoinFloor. And mm -hmm. these guys literally, they froze my entire NatWest account for days. And I had a, an old UK number attached to the account and I was already based in Australia. And I called up the department in NatWest that dealt with it. And it was some fraud department somewhere. They're like, oh, they don't have a phone number. I'm like, okay, well, how do I contact them? Oh, they have to call you. Okay, but I don't have the English number that they've got. Oh, well, and you're like, yeah. So basically the bank that I'm using has no way of contacting me and I've got no way of contacting them. But meantime, my entire bank account's frozen. And it took like five or six days to sort the whole thing out. Um, you know, and obviously the time difference is I'm going to sleep and then waking up and then calling that West in the UK. Just to complete that. It's like, it's my money, guys. W what have you done with it? Just give me back access to my bloody bank account. You think, oh, and so then you're like, why are we only allowed to send 10 grand online? And all these other like anti-fraud things that really are just about, excuse me, um, are just about protecting their own business. It's not about protecting what's mine. You know, they don't want you kind of drawing down too much money all at the same time, do they? Absolutely not. It's never for <laughs> you. It's, it's always for them. Um, and yeah, it's... I had another pleb on uh, Josias who shared a similar story with Barclays, but this one went on for weeks, if not months, that he was frozen out. You know, a, a bank account he'd held for like 30 years. Uh, wow. this, this keeps happening. So plebs, you know, get prepared, get get a backup account, get Revolut or something like that, or, or yeah. N26, get one of these and just get some money in, yeah. in those. So if you do get frozen from one, you still... or just get some cash on to these exchanges that you have to using, uh, using CoinFloor now we're bought out by Coin Corner. Um, they're yeah. doing a great job. You can park some cash on there and just use that to DCA uh, yeah. into Bitcoin. 
um, getting it out of the hands of these guys that are more than willing to just shut you down, even though you've been a, a, yeah, an account holder for 15, 20 years, is unbelievable. So what, uh, then, I'm interested like, now into like oh, so, so your story is, um, you know, you, you, you got that money um, as a young man, 20, I'm guessing now you're mid 30s, something like that. Yeah, 33 now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then um, you've been looking to, you know, you've gone down a rabbit hole of investment. Uh, the, the paradox of Bitcoin as well is like, uh, oh my God, it's so volatile. But at the same time, it's the, the most risk off asset I've ever seen in my life, you know, because mm. of the conviction and because of this research that we've done, you just see the inevitability of it and your comfort with it. But getting there is a, is a long, long journey. It's you, hard. Obviously, you, you did the VC stuff as well, where you were talking about you worked at uh, yeah. startups, but something brought you to the Far East and into um, the shipping world. Uh, it's yeah, not yeah. Like before you... we get too, too carried away, let's talk about that. Yeah, good idea. Um, so thanks for teeing that up, Daniel. So uh, when I finished business school, which is 2011, I was hunting around for work and I knew that I wanted to work in London, in the city, um, exactly what industry I wanted to work in specifically, I didn't know. And I figured that, you know, there's half a million students piling into London on an annual basis, um, you know, applying for, uh, you know, PwC, you know, forget it. Just don't even fucking bother. So I went down more of a, you know, um, a contact route <clears throat> and really any family friend, parent of a friend that I could get hold of, even like the old school network, that um, was working in London, I'd go and meet them. So I spoke with consultants, I spoke with bankers, I spoke with insurance brokers, I spoke with ship brokers, I spoke with um, you know, any number of different industries. And I can't remember what happened exactly, but as you probably know, yeah, you, you meet one person, they say, okay, you need to go and meet this other person. And when you meet that person, they then said, look, here's a list of contacts, a lot of companies that you've never fucking heard of contact all these people and this is what happened in the shipping space so i met an elder guy who was my aunt's friend and then he'd helped a younger guy get a job 10 years ago so i went to go and meet this guy charlie and he's like look here's 10 companies and send in you know you can say charlie you know i'm looking for a job whatever and didn't hear anything for six months and i suddenly got this email back from a company called simpson spence and young and i'm like who the fuck are they they sound like some lawyers i haven't been talking to a lot what's going on and it transpired, it was a shipbroken company. Oh my God, okay, this is an industry I was definitely interested in. And yeah, so two interviews later, boom, you've got a, a trainee broking role um, just in the East End of London. And you know, you're wearing a suit, in you go. I was living in Brixton at the time. And it was epic. It was a serious learning curve. I, I didn't know anything about shipping. Um, to, to give a very high level overview as to what, or how I break it down. There's basically there's three big markets: um, the dry cargo market, the wet cargo market, and the container market. So dry cargo is what I've ended up uh, specialising in. So this is iron ore, coal, grain, sand, cement, um, salt, fertilisers, concentrates, and it's basically a big floating bucket. And you know you fill it up with these bulk cargos, close the lid, off you sail. Wet cargo is um, crude oil and liquefied natural gas. So you need to have, you know, different type of ship. There's two hulls in case one of them breaks. You've got to have a screw on top. Um, they obviously are the, the source of oil spills, for example. If a tanker runs aground, you get 
much worse um, side effects than you do with a dry bulker. Um, and then the third being containers. So the big brand is Maersk. I always refer to all those boxes sitting on ships that are um, carrying fast mover consumer goods and other smaller cargoes, um, food, clothes, TVs, you know, whatever else has been shipped around. Um, so yeah, when did I start? I think I started at the very end of 2011. And I've already had two stints in the shipping industry. So I did five years, did a year in London, lost my job with SSY after about eight months in a pretty unceremonious fashion, um, a classic bit of nepotism. That was a real welcome to the real world, Jake. Um, managing director's daughter got engaged and the fiance needed a job. And the guys that ran this business sat me down and said, Jake, sorry, mate, it's a bums on seats issue. Um, fiance needs a job. Sorry, mate, you're out. And you're like, oh, my what? God. And it was a real kick in the nuts. And I was living with four mates. And as I mentioned, I was down in Brixton. I thought, how the fuck am I going to tell them? Because I was so like, yeah, got a, got a proper job. What are you guys doing fanning around back here? And got home and I was like, guys, I got sacked. <laughs> it's like, damn, how did this happen? Um, or let go, shall we say. Um, I, I'd enjoyed the work. I'd enjoyed the atmosphere. It was difficult. You know, there's from when we last chatted, you know, you were a broker for a long time. Um, you know, there's a lot of aggressive men sitting around making money basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them are absolute cunts, like straight up, you know, and they don't care who you are. And, you know, some, some of the, uh, some of the stories are funny actually in that first SSY stage. Um, the one I always tell, so I'd never dealt with international clients before, right? So you're on the phone. That's your first job. It starts from the phone. Jake, you've got one job. I need you to get two things. What is the name of the person calling and what company they're calling from? You're like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And a, you know, a nice Danish guy calls up and you can understand a Danish accent really easy. Talks about having a couple of beers and it's like, okay. And you can say it's Lars calling from whichever company. Easy. And then suddenly... Oh, terrorist, calling from Emwell Tokyo. And you're like, whoa, what the hell did that guy just say? And, you know, obviously it's an Asian accent. Okay, I've got to tell him the name and the company. I didn't understand the first time around. So I'm like, okay, I'm terribly sorry, Terry. So could you put it on hold, right? Say, Mark, excuse me. It's, you know, so and says, ah, you've got a call. I don't know who it is. Jake, what are they calling? Where are they calling from? What is their name? Anyway, try again. Sorry, can you tell me your name again? Oh, my name is Sun something 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 tokyo and i'm like ah oh, san tokyo so that that doesn't make much sense and i tried like a third time at which point you know you, you're doomed you're not going to get this guy's name or his company so like mark it's mr san from tokyo and suddenly the whole <laughs> desk are like no he didn't just do it did he mr san from tokyo so they're all on the phone to their clients hang on a second mate pause the phone light bulbs onto the, the trainee who's basically just asked <laughs> he's introduced mr mr from tokyo it's like that doesn't you know absolutely useless and so moments like that where you just get made to feel so small right just you're an idiot you can't even answer the phone and it's done in a jesty way but it's also like you know what are you playing at um another classic one as well would be um so, you know, I was lucky to go to a private school in the UK. My family business is a successful business. And I talk like a posh boy because I am a posh boy. And I got called a spoon straight away. I know what you are. You're a fucking spoon, aren't you? You're like, what do you mean? Oh, you've been spoon fed your whole life. Like, oh, here we go. Okay. So you're trying to fit in desperately and just some of these tricky parts of it. So 
Um, yeah, safe to say, I don't think it's a job that um, suits everyone. And there is a learning curve to it that's not just about an intellectual side of things. It's about like competing on a kind of male level. And, and some of the output of this behavior is, um, is not great, frankly. Like, you know, how happy are these guys in their marriage? What are they drinking every night? Like, you know, you just don't even want to know half the stories. Anyway, so SSY didn't work out. Um, I realized that if they got me a job in a, in a company, then I would look on them favorably. So they introduced me to a bunch of their clients and none of them were looking. And I also went to their competitors and it transpired that one of them, a company called Arrow, which is where I met our friend in common, Simon, um, was looking for a trainee and they said, actually, we need someone in Singapore. And so I decided to pack up my bags and headed over to Asia. And that was in 2012. And I then spent four very happy years working and living over there, generally as a single guy, traveling around Asia, Dubai, um, Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, um, Korea, Japan, you know, and then on personal travels into places like Vietnam, down to Australia for the first time, um, Sri Lanka. I was so, so fortunate to be able to do that. And it's all pre-COVID as well. I mean, we were on a plane, as you'll know from your life in Singapore, you know, sometimes two or three times a month. It mm -hmm. was madness in hindsight. Um, so yeah, to really home in on shipping itself and, and to take a step back from my personal journey through it, which is obviously a big part of it, but from a <clears throat> kind of factual level, I'm sorry to fast forward after five years, I, I quit in 2016 and I then went into the startup space for five years, tried to start a number of businesses of my own. None of them worked out and ended up getting back into shipbroking, um, in May of last year now in Melbourne. So I'm working in the dry bulk space again, doing a slightly different ship size. Um, yeah, so to explain a bit more about it as an industry, I think of it as the, the kind of the capillaries of our economy. So taking the containers out of it for a second, the wet and dry bulk market are really the, the, the highway of commodities. So there's not... There's, everything that runs our, commodity, uh, our economies comes via ship. So whether it is um, gener generating electricity. So, you know, I think well over 50% of the world's electricity is still done using coal. 1.2 billion tonnes a year is shipped around the world and burned. And that's either for smelting iron ore or for electricity generation purposes. And that's coming from Australia, that's coming from South Africa, that's coming from Indonesia, um, there's, you know, many parts of the world, Canada, still shipping coal around the world. Um, on, on dry bulk specifically, so yeah, so iron ore is the main driver of the market. This is mainly West Australian iron ore that's going up to China, Japan and Korea. And my time in Singapore was specifically focused on that market. So uh, Rio Tinto is a big mining company. They ship around 400 million tons a year from Australia into Asia. Iron ore is essentially a, a, a mud, like a brown um, looking material that gets smelted down and eventually becomes steel. So what goes into cars, hospitals, roads, and is, you know, if you think about like steel girders, right, that's, that's really the base material. Um, and what comes back out of that is then in some cases, dry bulk cargo. So uh, I now ship steel cargoes on smaller ships. Um, 
So yeah, that's a bit about iron ore, a bit about I coal. I remember in the uh, the mid, um, like 2000, well, that time you would have been in Singapore, those exact years, China were just buying the absolute arse end out of that market. It was ridiculous. Yeah, so I joined the shipping industry 2011, uh, which funny enough was actually in the, which was the aftermath of a generational cycle top. So the 2008-2009 dry bulk freight market was absolutely insane. So some of the some of the brokers, some of the freight traders that were in the market at the time made extraordinary amounts of money, and it was all driven by Chinese demand. Um, and I think that was probably a 15-year cycle that, that that really topped out at the time. Um, yeah, so to, to talk a bit about freight rates or, or higher, um, really what, uh, so I'm, I'm a ship broker. So I'm the middleman between the ship owner and the person with the cargo. On a very simple basis, if you are going to hire a car, you decide what car are you going to get? Where are you going to pick it up? How long are you going to take it for? How much fuel's in it? Are you going to replace the fuel? Um, and what are you doing with it whilst you've got it? And it's the same thing, but for large scale industrial ships. Uh, I, I think there's about 50,000 merchant vessels on the ocean at any one time, and that's dry, wet containers, and then all sorts of other stuff. Um, so they're, they're relatively big fleets, um, but then it ends up being a relatively niche industry in that um, there's just not, there's not that many people involved in it. Um, and so, yeah, so we're helping move, um, move cargo as the middleman between the ship owner and the, and the cargo buyer um yeah gosh i mean there's there's loads of different angles we could kind of go down through this explanation but i guess the 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 point of this um long story is that you see a a side of the world that is not in the front pages of the newspaper um climate change is a big discussion right what 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 are we doing about that well there's still 1.2 billion tons of coal on the ocean oh okay is that going to slow down no. Oh, okay. Why isn't that in the newspaper? Who knows? And funny enough, the climate change discussion on a personal level, I went very deep down the clean tech startup rabbit hole. And this was prior to understanding that Bitcoin was deflationary money. Um, <clears throat> and I left the shipping industry first time around because of my concerns about sustainability. I wanted to do something for the world. And uh, I was looking every day at the these companies their values built on growth so a an iron ore company will be talking about how many more tons it's going to ship next year than it did this year this year it's 100 mil next year it's gonna be 150 mil and we're going to bring the cost down so we're going to bring bigger margins and it's like that's not that's going against what the main newspaper climate change story is about right and, and the same comes with oil right supposedly all of these companies have got these these reserves but they're finding more of it all the time um and, and so yeah it's a funny one the the truth is yeah so just in terms of my personal journey then uh, i was pushing back as i wanted to be more involved in sustainability went down the sustainability rabbit hole and realized that all of these companies that i was trying to invest in that were building the clean tech of the future they're all premised on outrageous like hockey stick style growth so okay well is that actually how this is going to work this is about resource um, depletion long term like how do we have different mentality and then when you go and read the bitcoin standard for example and you hear about time preference 
and you're like, ah, oh, that's it. That's actually going to change something. Rather than trusting governments to regulate the markets in a way that will actually make people's behavior change, rather than kind of like hoping that technology is just going to come out of somewhere and just change everything. It's the, the very base of our economics that needs to change. And so all of the clean tech business plans I ever looked at, none of them actually look like they'll do the job versus Bitcoin. That is totally radical. But from a mentality perspective, it changes the way people think. And it changes your preferences in terms of thinking a long term, thinking more long term. Um, yeah, I'm rambling a bit here. I've touched on so many different subjects. Daniel, help me out. So what of that would, right. would you like me to, to dive yeah. into? Let, let, um, let's let's so delve, much delve into. About. Sorry. No, that's fine. Let, let, let's delve into um, like your day to day. Let, let's say I'm um, I need to ship some stuff. So somebody's going to call you up and say, I need a boat. <clears throat> So like, what are the steps that you need to go through to, uh, to start trying to uh, broker this deal and put this together? Mm. So, well, let me give you an example. Um, today, I was working on a, a deal, a company called Norden. And then, so they're originally based in, um, in Denmark, I think it is, Danish company. They have offices around the world. Um, they had a cargo that was from a place called Bunbury, which is West Australia with Illumina to a place called Baichuan, which is in China. And they, um, they will have basically taken this cargo from a mining company. Um, so whoever's produced that alumina will um, be the head charterer. And the head charterer often is only involved in the kind of cargo sale process. They're not interested in actually physically shipping it. So they know that in this case, I think it's on the 22nd of January, for a five-day window, so 22 Jan, 27 Jan, there's going to be 30,000 metric tons of alumina sitting in Bunbury port, ready to be carried to Bytran. And the head charter in this case will likely sell that cargo physically to a Chinese receiver. So the head charter is in Australia, the, um, they're effectively the shipper, and the receiver is then based in, in China. And they're like, okay, cool. There's two ways of selling that cargo. One is called F, uh, FOB, so freight on board. And the other is called CNF, which is um, insurance and freight included. If I said that right, FOB is free on board and the CNF includes freight. So FOB, the head charterer, sells that cargo to the Chinese buyer and that's it. Whereas a CNF contract, they will sell that cargo to the Chinese buyer and they'll sell them the freight price on top of that. Now, in order to gain that freight price, either the head charter does CNF or the receiver is looking to, to cover the freight as well. So they'll go to the market and they'll say, right, we've got 30,000 metric tons of, of alumina sitting in Bunbury to move to Bytran. And generally it's on email and you'll get this like, it's amazing actually the shipping language because it's such an old industry. Traditionally, you know, you could write letters and then eventually telegram was created. And so there's all of these extremely short anagrams that if you try to read a shipping email today, it would be a new language. And so that as a trainee broker is the first two or three years of your life is learning all of the different anagrams as to what it means. Um, and they're all basically raw legal shipping terms, but pushed into like three letters, like, um, uh, what's a good one? AA, always afloat. 
So sometimes <laughs> you'll take a ship into a into a river and it will actually the tide will go out and the, the hull of the ship will hit the, the riverbed and therefore it's no longer afloat. And some owners don't like doing that with their ships because it might damage the hull of the ship. And so and if that port is not an always afloat port, then they'll say, no, I'm not going there. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's crazy. So the email yep. quote will just have AA. And mm -hmm. so if you don't know what that means, you're like, well, hang on, what does that mean? Oh, always afloat. Well, what does that mean? And then so there's this huge learning process to understand what do these terms mean? Um, uh, LC as well, right? Letter of credit. Is that, is that another one? Yeah. So an, an, L, an, LOC, an LOC, LOC is, yep. an LOC is that's more part of the financing process. So before we go down that hole, let me just yep. jot that down because that's a good one to do. Yeah. Um, the... Yeah, let's keep on the anagrams. So the, the Illumina is it's sitting, it's ready to go. And so mm -hmm. an email will be sent uh, by whoever's in control of the cargo that needs the freight into the market, which will be, you know, any number of different brokers and um, other participants that are involved in, you know, that kind of business. Um, it's our job as brokers to pick up that email and generally to recirculate it to the people that it's relevant for um and really we're a price discovery mechanism so you know a ship might be sitting in the philippines it might be sitting in indonesia and they're looking at doing australia trips so they'll come down to us pick up a cargo and go back to china um but let's say there's a cargo of alumina sitting in bunbury okay well how much they're going to pay us uh we're going to pay you twenty thousand dollars a day okay cool well actually on the east coast two minutes behind that first email there's another cargo and this one's a company um, that I work with called Oldendorf. So they're a German business. Again, the, probably the biggest dry cargo operator and ship owner. And there's a, a port called Townsville, which is in Queensland, uh, where Glencore do a lot of business um, shipping concentrates. So this is copper concentrates, um, lead ingots, like all sorts of random stuff. Um, these cargoes will go to the continent, which is basically um, Europe or they can go to China, they can go, I mean, really anywhere, wherever Glencore sold the cargo. Sometimes Glencore sells it internally. Um, anyway, let's take the example of a ship sitting in the Philippines. They'll go, okay, how much are they going to pay me to do the trip with Lumina to China? And let's say the East Coast Australia cargo is actually going to, to Rotterdam. Um, how much are they going to pay me to go to Rotterdam? So there'll be a comparison. Now, in this case, Illumina is, um, it's important to have a very, very clean ship. Um, because of the type of cargo that it is, but a concentrates cargo doesn't need to be so clean. So if the ship sitting in the Philippines has just discharged coal, to go and clean six holds or five holds or whatever it is of coal, like think about like all this brown, uh, black soot, like stuck in the hatches and all over the place, to then turn up at a port and say, I'm alumina clean, you might get failed by the charterer if the cargo can't be put on board because it's not clean enough. So as brokers, you're like, okay, first you need to get the information on that cargo on the West Coast uh, of Oz about the Illumina. Okay, you call that, that charter and they're like, okay, we're looking for a 32,000 dead weight ship. We want to go to Bytran. We are already holding a price. So we've seen a ship in Indonesia at $25,000 per day. Okay, cool. That's a rough guide as to where at least the, the sell price is. Now, they might have booked that cargo on um, at 15 grand a day. If they go and spend 25 grand a day, they're losing $10,000 a day. 
So the, the freight traders sit in between the cargo and the ship, and they're trying to then make a margin on the cost of freight on either side. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so to continue on with this example, as brokers, we're trying to find out as much information as we can about that alumina cargo. And then on the other side, we're also trying to find out as much about the Oldendorf cargo with the Kongs and go, okay, what's their bid offer price? You can then go to a ship owner in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and maybe someone that's happened to open right next to the load port and say, look, this is the bid offer spread that we've got on these different types of ships. Every ship is different. The main running cost is uh, fuel. So everyone burns this stuff called um, bunkers. If you think back to your um, chemistry lessons, you had a um, refinery tower and at the top you've got kerosene, somewhere down the middle you've got petrol, then you've got diesel, and then you've got bitumen, which is you know tarmac. And then at the very bottom, you've got this like very viscous, horrible stuff that only ships burn, which is called uh, bunkers. IFO 180, this stuff is. Um, and yeah, so they count the, the running costs. You know, if you're 10 days from the port, then your costs to get there are 10 days worth of costs. But if you're only a day away, then of course your costs are lower, which means you can be more competitive on the hire. And it's basically a one big game of optimizing. So the ship owner is trying to optimize their asset. The guy with the cargo is trying to optimize the price that they're paying. As brokers, we take a 1.25% a fee of the total price of the hire. So if you've agreed to take a ship for 20 days, whatever the total cost of that ship is for 20 days, we get 1.25%. Um, yeah, I mean, there's then lots of different types of contracts. So in the case of the Illumina cargo I mentioned, um, there is something called a voyage contract and a time charter contract. And the, the voyage contract is when someone agrees a price on a per ton basis. So let's say they agreed $10 per ton. And you would then trade based on a voyage contract. And the second is called a time charter contract where you're actually agreeing on a per day hire. So the ship's at $10,000 per day. And as you can imagine, when you compare the two, they're, they're different calculations. But it's basically people will book in voyage contracts and get paid $10 per ton. They'll then hire ships on a per day basis, and they're going to try and make a margin in between those two different types of contract. And we as brokers are the middleman between those different deals. Um, yeah, so there's lots going on. And so um, much can go wrong at any point, right? A fluctuation yeah. in the currency exchange, because this is all settled in dollars, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, so it's all done in US dollars. And actually, that brings brings us back to nicely to the LOC. So... Um, so much can go wrong. So this is physical freight. This is not a derivative market. There is one called the FFA market, which um, you may have had some friends who are involved in over the years, actually, uh, which is basically people buying and selling the future hire of ships. So there is a forward curve for that. But what I'm doing every day is very much physical. So, you know, you're agreeing for a ship to be in a physical place at a certain time in a certain window, and all the time stuff goes wrong, basically. Um, because stuff happens, right? You've got physical machine with a physical cargo, with physical people, you've got bad weather, you've got congestion, you've got any number of things that can happen uh, that mean that, you know, you might've agreed for a ship to be there between the 22nd and the 26th of Jan, but just doesn't turn up. And so what, what are you going to do now? You've got to find another ship. 
And there's then this whole cascading issue of, you know, people basically spending all this money on the original deal, but then that deal didn't work out. And then people start to get cheeky. They're like, oh, let's just slow down a bit and not turn up on time because the market's gone up. And we reckon we can get more if we don't have to commit to that LACAN. Um, and equally, it goes the other way. And as a broker, you end up in the middle between these two companies that are basically taking risk against each other. And one of them's basically walked out on the deal. And your job is to kind of try and keep relationships sweet without like buckling to one side because those the other customer will never trust you again basically you end up doing some fairly i'm not gonna call it shady but you you don't necessarily send the whole message across and then equally on the other side you don't send the whole message across and it's funny because both parties will appreciate that that's what's going on and they'll let you get away with it in order for the deal to still kind of happen if that makes any sense um yeah so to talk about an loc a letter of credit is something that the head charterer um, will sometimes have to try and get with their bank. So if you're buying a huge amount of commodities, you obviously need deep pockets because you're paying large prices per ton, um, you know, hundreds of dollars a ton, if not more, uh, for certain commodities. And so these letters of credit get issued by banks and the letter of credit is then used as a almost like a receipt through what's called the, the charter party train. So... If I own a cargo and I want to move it somewhere, whoever's moving it takes the responsibility of that cargo basically on their own book. But equally, if I don't pay them to move it, they have the ability to keep it for themselves. So this is something called a lien on a cargo. There's then more technical terms around something called, so a charter party is the base contract that you agree. So that's what we're working on every day, basically, is you're writing charter parties between two companies. And there's then things called the bill of lading, which is effectively the receipt for the the, um, the Illumina cargo goes on board, you've arrived at the port, and once the cargo is loaded, there's a, a receipt that's given across to the person that owns the cargo to say, we're taking responsibility for this. Now, in a funny way, it's all still done using physical paper. And so that piece of paper still has to get to North China to buy Tran in order for them to know that whoever's in possession of it is the person to give the cargo to. Because if you think back historically, you're sailing around the world with a cargo that's very valuable. You get to a port and someone could just call your bluff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was supposed to be for us. And you unload a million dollars worth of cargo with the wrong bloke. Like, oh, no, nightmare. So funny enough, in terms of blockchain specifically, I see a huge amount of potential use cases for international shipping contracts to be done using this technology. And it's absolutely ludicrous that it's not already happening, frankly. Um, because you've got all of these parties that don't trust each other based in different domains. Like a lot of ships are registered in Panama, Liberia, the Marshall Islands, like all in tax havens. Um, the, the ability to exchange value as a, a bearer asset, right? You literally, there's no middleman. People will start using Bitcoin. Like, of course they will for international trade. It makes so much sense. And when you look at what someone like Jack Mallers is doing in Strike, that's a very retail focused like product, they're using the Bitcoin network to transfer value and then keeping things in synthetic dollars. Why wouldn't you do that for large scale commercial commodity trading? Well, they will. Like it's super, super simple. There's so much hassle at the moment that goes into it. Um, so yeah, you've then got this whole chain of people involved in moving these raw commodities around the world. And that's been some of the most fascinating stuff to, to learn about. 
You um, even have um, like customs officials getting involved as well, right? Because the, the oh yeah, there's to be inspected, smuggling, and there's there's all sorts going on. I mean, piracy you know, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, one of the first jobs I had was an operations boy, and um, a ship that I was dealing with, the Rosalia de Masso, I'll never forget this. Got it got um, hijacked by Somali pirates, and it had a grain cargo on board. Grain does not last. Grain goes off when it's sitting in the in the heat. And I got this phone call from this guy going absolutely fucking crazy. What's going on with this ship? Blah, blah, blah. And I was obviously, I was a 23-year-old trainee. I didn't know what was going on. Like, answering the phone. <laughs> like, yeah, just shaking. Um, yeah, piracy, 100%. Um, and you have to remember, like, shipping is, is conducted in international waters. There is no government. The United Nations has uh, an organization called the International Maritime Organization, the IMO. And they're the guys that try and dictate regulation when it comes to reducing sulfur in fuel that recently happened. So there was a big thing about changing the bunkers um, and trying to influence how people design ships for the future and trying to make them more eco-friendly and things like this. But at the end of the day, you know, I dread to think what happens out there, but people go missing. There's people on board ships for years at a time that have their passports taken away from them and they can't escape, like modern modern slaves, essentially. Um, it's it's quite shocking. Um, yeah, so Daniel, you asked me about like what I see in the supply chains today, which mm -hmm. we should, yeah. after this very so, long-winded right. so explanation, now, we should now get to. Kind of, yeah, yeah, for sure. So now, now I'm interested into uh, like kind of unpicking what went on when all of a sudden everybody goes into lockdown uh, the, the global economy is basically shut down. People are sitting at home. They're being paid to sit at home. They're just naturally going to go online on Amazon and, and buy the things that they want to buy, or perhaps they need a laptop to work from home, or perhaps they've got time to do up the, the garden or the, uh, you know, or, or build a shed or do some DIY. People need stuff, right? But at the same time, the, the factories that are producing this shit have been shut down themselves or you know um aren't operating to full capacity and then we have this oh due to coronavirus uh you know the the supply chain is is all backed up um what were you seeing like uh it, i'm sure it hit the container market far worse than than anything else but um what were you guys thinking and discussing when when these look you must have seen what was going to happen like this is a disaster mm. Yeah, I mean, so I only started back in the industry in May of 2021. So I wasn't necessarily in the space for the beginning of COVID. I was trying to get a job again, frankly. So my main experience was like, well, you know, COVID's happened, lockdown's in place. We can't hire anyone. We can't, you know, how, how are we going to introduce any customers? Like, so that was a nightmare, to be honest, um, having just emigrated and been in pretty severe need of a job at the time after years of failed startups. Um, but I mean, stuff I see on a day-to-day -day basis. So I mentioned that we're, we're effectively brokering charter parties between, so a contract between two, a shipper and a, and, and sorry, a ship and a cargo. These charter parties never had anything in them to do with COVID-19, right? Ever. And we now have COVID-19 clauses for days and they are, um, very varied but to give a, a specific example of what happened to me so i was doing a deal um between a company called oldendorf and a company called western bolt carriers 
and Western Bulk had a ship uh, opening in Japan that um, was interested in a cargo that Oldendorf had, which was a slag cargo doing inbound Australia. So, so Japan to Australia. And we were trying to do a deal where Oldendorf would take the ship for not only the trip into Australia, but also they'd have the option to do another one whilst they were here and maybe a third. And at the time, it was a very healthy um, freight rate of like over $30,000 per day, which as a broker would have netted me, you know, 35,000 US dollars. Wow. Like that's really great business for a week's work. Um, what happened in the end was uh, we agreed all of the terms. We are fixed on what's called main terms. And the, the ship itself then has to be vetted by the people that are having the cargo moved. And due to the fact that the vessel had just changed head owners, they were replacing the crew. So this meant that a crew was, the new owners were Turkish. The crew was flying over from Turkey, was going to be in a place called Ulsan in Korea where um, you know, we had all of this proof of vaccination. The poor guys have all got to get jabbed to go to work. Then they've got to um, get PCR tests like in all of these different locations, had all of this information. You send it across to what was the Japanese head charterer and they declined the vessel. Said, no, we're not going to use this ship to move our cargo. And the reason is Australia has got very, very strict COVID rules. So if a sailor is found to have COVID on board, they are not going to go anywhere near an Australian port and discharge, full stop. Um, on the flip side of that, the Australian, um, I think AMSA is Australian Maritime Services Authority or something. They have rules around how long sailors are maximum allowed on board a ship, which is if a sailor has been on board for, for 11 months, that's too long. So you've got this kind of strange window where to come and trade with Australia you cannot have had a crew member on board for more than 11 months. But then equally, if you've got a brand new crew, then what if they caught COVID in the airport in Korea? And then you've got a court cargo on board worth millions of dollars, and then you get stuck off an Australian port. This is an absolute nightmare scenario for one of these companies. And so in my case, the ship got dropped and the deal didn't happen. To give another example, there was a, a ship that was actually inbound to Australia they had a COVID case on board. The ship ended up sitting off Australia for three weeks. The crew had to be taken off, put in quarantine in a, in a West Australian hospital. A Australian crew had to quarantine for two weeks and then be put on board the ship. And even then, when the ship registered with the head charter Rio Tinto to do the piece of business it was required for, they declined it. Who foots the bill for that, right? Who foots the bill? And the end, it, it will go to arbitration. And there'll be this small clause that was originally like an infectious diseases clause that's now grown out to being a COVID-19 clause. It's like three or four you know, paragraphs long, which are basically saying, you know, if the crew gets changed, it's for the owner's account if they have COVID. But if we take the ship somewhere and the port requires like waiting time, then as charters, we will pay. And we spend all day, every day negotiating COVID-19 clauses because everyone's got their lawyers involved and everyone's got a slightly different one. And they'll all say, we cannot do this deal unless you get this agreed. So that's a couple of examples on my day job where we're seeing like, basically it's just, it's egregious regulation where everyone's scared of, of, of a government saying, no, you can't do that. Um, on a wider level, COVID is causing huge congestion. So it's funny that you mention, you know, people sitting at home buying stuff online. The government rhetoric 
is you guys cause this problem. You guys are online buying stuff and you are the problem that this is, this is happening. That's why prices are going up. You know, and as Bitcoiners, we know that that's fucking horseshit, right? And at the same time, they're saying you need to buy more things to spur the economy, right? Yeah, so oh, but keep spending, right? Yeah. Keep spending, otherwise you're a bad consumer. Um, so on a wider level, you know, now you've got all these quarantining rules. So Australia, if you're coming from certain parts of the world, like Indonesia with high COVID rates, they want you to wait 14 days. or, or It's about five days from Indonesia to Australia, some parts of it. And the Australian ports want you to have not been in Indonesia for 14 days. So that means you've got a 10 day wait sitting off Australia. Now you're still burning fuel every day. You have an opportunity cost to do business elsewhere. Um, and so people are having to run calculations with 10 days of waiting. This is unheard of. What this does is, and this is really what drives shipping. I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet. It's all about supply and demand. And if there's huge demand for cargo for for ship space and it can't be matched the price goes up and it's a very 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 um fluid market in that sense like sometimes there is only one ship that can do that cargo guess what price is going up or equally there's now four ships that can do the same cargo guess what price is coming down um so congestion is like an artificial um inflation in terms of um like supply reduction. So if you think there's 100 ships on the ocean today, and for them to do their normal business, the price is at 10, but now it's taking them 25% longer to do their normal business. Well, what's happened? You've got 25% less supply, and that pushes the freight rates up. So one of my mates told me recently, he works in the container space. LAX has got 70 ships sitting to discharge. Why is that? Because the American government only allows a certain amount of stevedores in the LA uh, port at any one time because of COVID. So basically, the port's not running at full capacity, which means none of these stevedores, ships can discharge. Stevedores are the, the guys that time. unload the ships. Is that correct? Or did, did, yes, did... yeah. So this is the you know the guys running the forklifts and the cranes and all that okay. kind of stuff. Um, they're 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 understaffed. They they can't they can't perform at the same capacity as before because they're not allowed to which means that the same volume of cargo coming into LAX cannot be discharged in the same amount of time. So it takes longer, which means that there's then a backlog. And then before you know it, you've got huge congestion. And what that means on a you know, day-to-day basis, um, recently I had a ship owner in Shenzhen, so next to Hong Kong, and they had a small ship there that they were looking to, um, well, in this case, funny enough, the owner didn't mind because they'd been paid a lot to sit there and do nothing, but they couldn't get what's called a pilot. So every port has a, um, a sailor, essentially, a captain, a port captain that will come out and do the very final, like last 2% of the journey into the berth because they know the local waterways, you know, like the back of their hands. And there's only a certain amount of pilots in each port. And guess what? There's a shortage of pilots, which mean all of these ships are sitting at Anchorage. They can't even get on the berth. And the container market's $100,000 a day at the moment. There's 100,000 reasons why the pilot's getting five grand in a brown paper bag to go and deal with that shit rather than this one that's costing $30,000 a day. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge mess that, from my opinion, is caused by inept governance. And that's really where the blame should lie in terms of you know, increased freight rates. Also, you know, 25% of US dollars ever created were printed in the last 24 months. 
So of course, where's that going? Store of value, commodity prices, up we go, right? You, you, you can't, you cannot deny the fact, you know, so my beef prices have gone up 20%, says the butcher. Funny enough, fish hasn't gone up, but, um, you know, you want to buy timber, gone up. Coal prices, you know, iron ore prices, they were posting like almost all-time highs in the last 12 months. And, and why is that? Okay, everyone tells you it's the fundamentals. The fundamentals, you know, it's the, it's the post-COVID recovery. Um, but for me, it's just, it's all money supply. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only thing that's really driving it. Um, these, these boats yeah, as so well. That's, that's some of the stuff I see on a daily basis. And when these boats are sitting there doing nothing, you have something called de demurrage, right? If you want to yep. explain that. So there's something called demurrage and there's something called dispatch. And you, you agree a term where basically if the ship owner carries a cargo somewhere and they do it in less time than they expect it to take them, then there is a, a discount on the cost. And that's called dispatch. And equally, if the ship owner gets there, does the business, and it takes them longer than it's supposed to, the guy who's paying for the cargo to be moved has to pay something called demurrage, which is effectively a, a pre-agreed rate on a daily basis that the ship owner will be paid. And that's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mediator, basically, where, you know, let's say I'm charging you $10 a tonne. I've got a bit of leeway on on the uh, on the upside in terms of getting there faster, which means I can do a new piece of business and I'll just give you a discount. And equally on the downside, I'm covered because you know you could turn up and there's no pilot. Great. So I'm now sitting there off the off the off the port with a full cargo, can't discharge. I want to go and do some other business and you, you know, I can't until I've got rid of this cargo. So there's yeah, it's a pre-arranged um fee for any extension to the to the business. And another thing here as well, mate, which I I witnessed um, I, the the last year of my career, <clears throat> after um, seventeen years in foreign exchange, I spent a year in commodities uh, in Singapore, uh, looking at soft oils. You know, when the um, uh, the the palm oil, basically, or the coconut oil that is getting shipped um, around the world, and and obviously got exposed to the crude oil market and the WTI and, and things like that, and learned a lot. Um, you know, like you said, yeah, it's a steep learning curve. And one thing that shocked me, you have these brokers, uh, excuse me, traders that are trying to arb the futures market. So they'll see the, the futures market for the price of palm oil in, say, I don't know, six months time is being pitched at this price. So they'll buy physical cargo now with the intent of never taking uh, physical delivery of it, mm -hmm. but selling it again when it's out on the water. Mm -hmm. So you've got this kind of weird situation where a boat is like four months into its journey, excuse me, um, the, the trade is four months in and the boat is uh, about to be dispatched or halfway across the ocean heading towards one of these ports to, uh, to unload. And, it, you know, the nature of palm oil as well, in particular, it can go into anything, right? It goes into all kinds of different products, as we now know, and it's, you know, obviously very disgusting, but it might be headed to a port where Nestle are going to take control of it somewhere in God knows where Brazil, but then mm -hmm. get sold on the water by the futures trader that's been trying to arb the deal. Now the price has gone up and he never wanted physical delivery of it anyway. And he sold it to a petroleum company that are going to bring it to Germany to put through a refinery to put into like E10 blend fuel. That blew me away. I'm like, how like, so what you've 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 burnt all of this fuel getting halfway across this way to the ocean 
And now you've sold the cargo to somebody else. So whoever's now going to take over that cargo, probably they have to change, like you said, they've probably got to change the crew. Uh, so that there's, you know, God knows what how they do that. Helicopters in and out, or they've got to find somewhere to berth, and that's more money and blah, blah, blah. It just seems so inefficient and mm -hmm. um, speculative, to be to be quite frank. Uh, it was just a real weird one for, for me to come to that realization of what's going on out there on the water and all of it. The, they're just literally like little... Um, you know, you see the old war room where they just move in the boats with the, the long mm. sticks, you know, it, it's, it's mad. It is. And it is. Um, does that happen as well with, with, with aluminium and coal and things like that? Are they almost yeah, of course, a destination? Of course. Yeah. So you, you end up with these. So there's, there's basically there's two trades happening at the same time. And, and I think probably on the whole, the commodity trade is the more valuable part of it. What we do on freight is an essential piece of it. And you can also trade freight, which a lot of these guys do very successfully. Um, but yeah, it's so a coal cargo of 150,000 tons coming out of Newcastle in Australia, like that might be originally owned by BHP who've mined it, but they've then sold it to one of their close partners who's actually a Singapore based uh, commodities trader, like a, you know, Trafigura. Okay, cool. Trafigura has got it. Now they've got a receiver in China that they're close with and they've sold it to them. Okay, so that's already three people in the chain on the coal. Now, Traffy have got a freight arm. So the freight boys come into the market and say, look, we've got a 150.10 stem out of Newcastle for you know split dates, Jan, Feb. Um, we're willing to pay 10 bucks a ton into Qingdao. Okay. Um, and they're then trading, you know, are we going to sell it to the Chinese on an FOB basis or are they going to do it CNF? And if the Chinese are willing to pay them you know, 12 bucks, then they might do the freight themselves. But equally, the Chinese are like, no, no, we don't want that. And they've then got, they'll sleeve it into one of their cheap Chinese operators that will come and pick it up for, in some rust bucket, basically. Um, <laughs> but to, to your point, you've got... And, and just to, just to stop... involved in the commodities from... deals, people in the freight deals. It's, it's, it's a huge... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mess in a way. Um, and there's a third, you know, like, there's FX risk on this the whole time, right? Because if you've yeah. sold the, the good, if you've sold the coal um, or, or the, the cargo, whatever, in Australia, you're getting paid in US dollars, right? This is all getting paid in US dollars. But at some stage, you want that converted to Aussie because yeah. that is where you're operating your business. And the, the, the Chinese, they're settling in US dollars, but at some stage, they want to settle back into um, uh, Remnambi because that is how they're operating their business. So if the price of that good changes or the currency fluctuates for whatever reason, perhaps the, you know, there's an intervention, you know, the Australian central bank prints a load of money in and that changes the exchange rate. It's just, there's so many moving parts. Yeah, that's the side of the business I don't know anything about actually in terms of the FX risk because we're just constantly trading in US dollars and- right agreeing charter parties in usd all the fuel prices everything's agreed in usd but you're right for the the operators that are let's take bhp for example like all mm -hmm. of their labor costs will be in aussie dollar and yep. therefore all of their costs to port is in aussie dollar but they're then being paid in usd so the margins these guys are making on an annual basis fluctuate massively based on how the currency is performed um, how well, they, they hedge in, that risk? I'm not they, sure. Well, they come into they come into the market. That's where they will have a treasury. That's desk. when you then deal with them. Yeah, that's where BHP or Rio they all have a a, a treasury desk. Um, but they yeah. don't come direct to the broker. They go direct to the banks. 
They go okay. only to the banks. The banks have this cartel. Uh, so uh, the, the, the banks have the hedge funds, the venture capitalists, the, um, the, the commodity traders, all of it, all foreign exchange will have to go through the bank sales desk. There's nowhere in the world a, um, a hedge fund could come directly to market, i.e. The, the foreign exchange brokerage market. Wow. All goes through the banks. I don't know how they locked that up. Uh, and there was a case once where Citadel, a huge hedge fund, they wanted to come straight to our desk. They said, we want to open a line with you. We, just, we want to just stop going straight through the banks. And mate, like that caused a huge, huge problem in the market. All of the banks suddenly started, this is when we were at GFI, the banks started mm -hmm. coming in and said, we've heard a rumor this is going on. If you do that, we're pulling the line. We will not talk to you. That was wow. Citibank, that was JP Morgan, that was HSBC. So then you're like, oh, okay, well, that's clearly put the kibosh on that. So yeah. the BHP will have to go in and say, right, we're receiving 300 million uh, US dollars for selling this cargo, but we need mm -hmm. to be able to pay in one month, two months, three months time, this amount of Aussie dollars, uh, either for, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, it could be to pay off uh, workers, employers, to pay for the um, uh, machinery, or whatever else, right? Taxes, yada, yada, yada. So they've got a hedge that exposure to their US dollars if their cost base is in Aussie. So they'll come mm. to a bank and that bank will give them uh, like a foreign exchange option in three months time. Here's where we believe the rate will be. It's most likely to be here in three months time when you need this money. So you can put this forward position on now, which will guarantee you this amount at strike rate at uh, expiration date. And on we go. And are people then are people then trading those those tranches yeah. of in and out all the time? So the banks yeah. will take on that risk, and then yeah. they will either just hold that risk if they want, or come to the market and hedge some of that risk off through us onto other banks. So this was just it, it just did not ever end. And, and so uh, Daniel, so so um, the the invention that is Bitcoin or the discovery that is Bitcoin, however you want to describe it. A, a bearer asset that is an open network that is accessible globally um, is all of what we're really describing just complete noise like yeah. you, you can just do all using bitcoin right there's there's yeah. no need to absolutely you know, your, your shipping contracts can be denominated in bitcoin the the oil price will be denominated in bitcoin because it's connected to the energy market there won't be any fx risk because everyone's using the same currency right so that entire market just gone um or maybe it'll it'll evolve in some way but it's it's interesting to think about how you know we talked a lot today about well my personal journey but also then this this day job that's taught me so much about the the international shipping market and how much stuff is being moved all around the world and how it's done like we got quite technical at points like there's obviously all these contracts you think it's so complicated because of historically we we had to build contracts around trust like a ship broker, there's the, um, I'm not actually a member of it, but there's the, what's it called? The Baltic Exchange has, a, and there's the Ship Brokers Association or something. And it's called Our Word, Our Bond. And, and this is a historical term that's really based around, you know, if you shook hands with someone in the, in the shipping exchange in London and you're moving a cargo that's from South America to Africa, well, how do you know it's going to turn up? It was it was built on those kind of physical human relationships. Then all of these contracts with then insurance products around that, and 
a charter party was deemed as this thing that was completely like you know the bible and you couldn't fuck them up and all the rest of it but do you think now we have this this technology that we can all attach to from all of these different industries and, and international positions and trust that will help i mean it's going to help trade enormously isn't it um yeah it changes the game. People, it like focus the game. on creating value as well rather than you know just the, the speculation that we see all the time i mean that's what all of these ship operators are doing that i deal with every day they're like okay that ship at 20 grand a day i reckon that's cheap i'm going to book that and then there's that alumina cargo 10 bucks a ton okay done oh look i just made 200 grand well well done but the ship could have been too expensive or the market might have gone against you and you've just lost 600 grand and so you know obviously the best traders in that space they know their market so well it doesn't you know, they, they feel that they can hedge that risk as a result. But wow, it's so interesting, isn't it? And so how do you see um, uh, this whole kind of citadels conversation, which I do love kind of thinking about? The citadels are, in theory, going to be built by Bitcoiners with varied skill sets in different parts of the world. And this concept of monetizing energy at source for the first time ever, um, meaning that you can build you know advanced civilizations in remote places you don't need to be close to these cities that we've created these large nodes effectively that the previous um, hierarchy of society required um, do you think fx brokers ship brokers are going to be important parts of building citadels like how do you think that works um yeah very very good question before before we go down that i just want to ask you one last thing about shipping and it's about yeah, the, sorry, uh, go for it. But, but we will come back to that i'm making a note Daniel, uh, how much time have you got? yeah um the and i've been thinking about this ever since it happened and you you mentioned it here um about you don't just sail a ship up to a port right you have to stop you have to wait for the pilot to come out these are highly skilled individuals they know exactly what they're doing and then they get on board they take control of the ship um, the captain would stand there, obviously, uh, on the bridge with him. There'd be the pair of them would bring it into uh, into birth and, you know, job done. I cannot, for the life of me, fathom out how that boat blocked up the Suez Canal if the it was, it was the evergreen boat, right? Like, uh, if this is the procedure, this guy, whoever went on board to pilot that ship through the canal, you know, this wasn't his first rodeo, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. And there's a captain stood right next to him. And these boats, I mean, they, they move slow. And I know they're very hard to turn around. But between them, surely there would have been a point where something seems a little bit off. Like, it just seems like such a freaking weird situation. What was going on around your circles? Were the discussions... Was it just like, a, oh, well, well, I mean, yeah. my wife was at the time, you know, deep down the rabbit hole. She's like, it's all been planned. And this is part of unsettling supply chains. And it's um, it's it's a way of disrupting families and pushing prices up and, um, you know, causing social unrest. It's been done on purpose. And hiding behind uh, that was that was her. Sorry. And hiding because we know it's the money that's we know it's the money that's caused this inflation we we know it's their policies yep. that they've put but what an excuse oh supply chains are fucked up because this boat yeah yeah exactly um 
I, I don't really have an opinion on it per se. And the what you're saying is totally rational. So the Suez Canal, it's a hundred year old canal, right? That is arguably the busiest waterway in the world. Although, you know, it's one by one, but it's still, it's, it's insanely valuable. Like people have gone to war over the Suez Canal. You don't just casually block it up. Like the, the type of person that would have been in charge of that ship would be an extremely experienced sailor. They wouldn't be allowed near the, till, uh, the tiller unless they, they actually had done, you know, years of experience doing it. So it, it, it smells fishy. I don't know uh, any specific stories um, from my day job that help explain why it happened or, or what actually happened. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, has the guy's name ever been released? Do we know whoever sailed it? Oh, I Did didn't, he lose I didn't, his job? I don't know. I couldn't say. But you'd think that would be front page news, right? <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the guy that, the guy that ran aground in the sewers, like you'd never get a job again. Right. No. Um, and especially in your industry, surely that everybody must have known, like who was in charge there? Like, don't, don't send me that guy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, in many ways, it's it's also very geographical. So although that's a ship-related story and it's the Suez Canal, it's a headline grabber, like predominantly what we're doing is focused on Australian business. And so our day job didn't really get affected by that ship running aground. Like it was as much of a story to you as it was to me in terms of, you know, hit the, new, the headlines and um, there was question marks as to how or why it happened. Um, but I, I didn't, it wasn't something that came up in conversation. Uh, what, what's better is that story of LAX and 70 ships backed up. Like that's a friend of mine who works in containers. It's like, it's a joke. And it's because no one can get in the port. That's like a real, you know, off the desk story that makes sense. But for that particular um, Suez Canal thing, I don't know, actually. Mm. I'd like and to the, other, the other anecdotal story that you shared about like the, uh, the pilots um, in parts of, uh, well, tell me where it was, where, where they're literally taking cash in, in brown paper bags, uh, yeah, well, it's a it's a bit of a running joke. The this happens all the time, mm. all, all in all all areas of the shipping industry. Um, there there are agents in every port, and they get appointed mutually by the, the charterer or the owner. And there's a lineup of ships, and for some spurious reason, the ship that arrived last is suddenly first on the berth. How did that happen? Well, it's probably because that was an expensive ship and so-and-so's got a mate in the agency who's just taken his kids on holiday. You know, it's 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 part of doing business in many ways. Like, you know, whatever, fair enough. They run the port. You want to change it? Do something about it. Oh, you can't because it's a different country with a different culture and a different set of people running the place. So shut up and get on with it. Um, I mean, even even in... I mean, it's 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 pretty blatant, frankly, but... So some of the biggest ship owners in the world are, for example, Greek. And the Greeks, they base all of their um, operational staff, so their lawyers, their accountants, um, the ship operators themselves, they'll be in Piraeus, just outside Athens. Um, <clears throat> Greece, as we know, had a sovereign debt crisis like in the very recent history. And some of the, the ship owners there, they're billionaires, right, these guys? People like George Economou, Angela Kousis. Um, huge, huge shipping magnets. And the, the businesses that they run are run through Greece, but the ownership of them is in places like Panama, Liberia, the Marshall Islands, and they don't pay tax at all, anywhere. 
And the structure of the fleet is they'll have a, a management company that sits above. So you've got 100 ships in your fleet. There'll actually be 100 limited companies. So each ship is its own company that's then controlled by a managing company. So if, if a ship owner takes a cargo and either sails too slowly or refuses to behave in a way that the charterer, charterer wants, um, there'll be a disagreement, right? Oh, you didn't sail there on time. Or you sat outside the port because you said we hadn't paid you, but actually we had paid you. Or, you know, there's some kind of, you know, dispute about whatever. Um, if they try and take them to court, they can only take that one limited company to, to court. Even though there's 99 other ships that are still owned by the same guy, how do you get them? They're all a different legal entity. And, and, it's, and it's, it's done every day, right? So they, they have got the whole concept of offshoring wealth, like they've been doing this a long time. And it's, it's legal, right? Come and get us. What are you going to do about it? Um, yeah, it's all part of the industry, I guess. Mate, very interesting. Well, thanks for taking us down that uh, down that rabbit hole and uh, exposing, you know, what you do day to day. I, I, it's going to go a long way to help people understand that that industry and um, you know, hopefully, join a few more dots in their macro minds. But to get back to your idea about the citadels, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, it's a great meme, isn't it? People people literally do think of the castle and they're going to buy their castle and everyone else can fuck <laughs> off and whatever else. And, you know, great, you know, I love it. But you know, more more practically, what's going to happen is uh, communities are going to start springing up and uh, they're going to start springing up um, in different jurisdictions that are obviously friendly to Bitcoiners, uh, where you've probably got uh, some natural resources and, and a bit of land, and you can start building uh, a community that, that you want to be a part of. And of course, you're going to need people to come across and help do that, right, and bring their different specific skills. And Bitcoiners are going to be attracted to Bitcoiners, for sure. So the, the, the medium of exchange is going to be Bitcoin, right? That, that's mm -hmm. it's just going to be an absolute given. There's And it's really exciting when you think about, like, we're, we're at this point of history, uh, within our our species, and you know, I spoke to Svetsky about this. You know, I don't see it as a you know a revolution. I see it as an evolution. You know, we're going to see these communities evolve. We're evolving onto a new uh, form of um, money. Uh, th this new form of medium of exchange, which is mutually accepted. Right? It's not forced on us. We have mm -hmm. decided that yes, I am going to uh, use Bitcoin to to store my wealth. And going forward, I would love to be able to pay someone in Bitcoin, another Bitcoiner that is providing a service and, uh, you know, pay in Bitcoin for that. Uh, and, and I think this is where communities are going to get built out. And this idea of the Meshtadel, which has been um, discussed, uh, you know, Max does a great job, uh, bit by bit podcast, talking to Sino uh, and um, Soul Exporter. Uh, and Joel, uh, you know, what he's doing, um, untapped growth with the uh, um, regenerative agriculture and, and all of these big ideas that are now being put together and, and people want to get back to building things from from timber that they've milled like ben gunn is doing uh, you know in uh, in wales like you know cutting down a harvesting an old oak forest and turning that into beautiful lumber but he only wants to sell the material to bitcoiners that are going to build communities with it like uh, it's it's truly heartwarming to see all of these things start slowly coming together and it's only going to get bigger and you know more sped up over the next uh, few years um i don't know what, what what are your kind of thoughts on uh, on all of that um 
well, I just, I just somehow hope that these skills I've picked up aren't going to be, um, right. Uh, they'll be useful. In some way. <laughs> yeah. I, cause I mean, my, I mean, to be blunt, my, my dream is to work in Bitcoin. Like I, mm. I'm, I'm happy working as a shipping broker, but I, I'm not as passionate about it as I am about, about Bitcoin. And it's not a, it's not a nascent industry that I see. It just marries up so much stuff that I'm interested in that it's, it's a space I'd like to be working in on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, given that it would be, it just struck me as interesting, right? If people are actually going to build new cities, well, they need raw materials. How are they going to get raw materials? Well, they're going to have to get them. Oh, okay. Well, I know how to do that. Um, and it will just be on very small scale to begin with, I guess. And it will then, you know, grow and grow and grow. And it will be quite fun to, you know, even think about denominating a shipping company in Bitcoin. Like the the whole, the, the ramifications of that are just so huge. You know, if you put mm. a Bitcoin into a company today and you own that company in 10 years time, you still own that one Bitcoin. You can take out debt against what is the best, you know, collateral in the world and finance interesting ROI projects. Now, they might be in, you know, creating digital products. They might be in building a mine. They might be in creating a citadel. I, I don't know. Um, so there's there's so much that it that might happen. Um, what, what I do love that you touched on is <clears throat> this idea of like localism and the fact that, and Mark Moss talks about this brilliantly, the, 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 the kind of the, the tussle between the individual and the collective. And his analysis at the moment is talking about this technological, political and um, social uh, kind of convergence of all of these, these waves happening at the same time and how he sees everyone moving back towards a, a far more individual-focused um, society, essentially. And Bitcoin allows that, right? We don't need to trust anyone else for money any longer. Okay, great. How do we access it? Through a mobile phone. Okay, cool. Well, let's do it. Um, so, yeah, to me, the, the Citadel thing's a really fun concept, and it's that idea of being independent, the idea of, of looking after yourself, the idea of not needing social services to wipe your ass every day, and actually going fuck it let's go and build a farm like why not let's live close to the to the food source let's actually make it happen um which is very inspiring and it's hopefully something we'll see in our lifetime it's still i mean we're still so early right to my point with the podcast name the 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 the, the network that you're building through your podcast for example is going to be a network that's built within this network that's only just at its very infancy i mean as, as content producer the the opportunity I see for Bitcoin education is incredible. Like if you think about how many people Bitcoin is today, okay, a couple percent. How many people will be? Probably 99%. Okay, is everyone going to listen to what Bitcoin did? No, they're going to listen to whatever they like. And there's going to be so much of it that can be created that's relevant to those people and their experience and their language and culture and all this stuff. Um, that's all kind of part of the citadel, right? Is this rebuilding of, of of networks? I think it's oh, it's so interesting. I could go on about it for probably another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of Bitcoin, mate. It touches yeah, everything. Isn't it? All roads lead to Bitcoin, and uh, it fixes everything as well as uh, you know the, the great meme. Uh, you know, Bitcoin fixes this and fix the money, fix the world. They're so great. They're such anchoring memes that um, yeah. Big shout out to to the guys that uh, have have come before us and put down, you know, the the hours. Yeah, and helped us work. understand it exactly. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, um, it's a conversation for another time, I'm sure, Daniel. But I, I'd love to hear more about um, your experience with homeschooling. And I've just become a dad for the first time, and so about to enter into that whole world. I actually dropped off my daughter at a, a Steiner School um, daycare center today. It was just amazing watching these little kids all interacting with each other. Um, but yeah, that'll be a conversation for another time, I'm sure. Yeah, hundred percent, man. All right, well. Thanks for um, thanks for coming on. It's it's great to do these pleb episodes and uh, you know get to know you know like the day to day ins and outs of of people's lives and struggles and discoveries, epiphanies. Um, yeah, appreciate uh, you sharing. How can people come and find you? And uh, let's point them towards your podcast as well. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Jake E S Woodhouse. That's probably the best place to find me. Uh, my podcast with my mates is called We Are So Bloody Early, which is our YouTube. Um, but yeah, I hang out on Twitter the most. So that's the best place to get in touch. Excellent. Cheers, Jake. Take care, mate. Well, Daniel, uh, thanks so much for your time. Take care. See you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Jake, for giving up the time and coming on and giving us all of this information of what it's like to be in between these trades as a ship broker seeing all of these flows and seeing how the the macro economy kind of unfolds before your eyes and all of these tiny little intricacies that no one really even gives any kind of forethought to or even you know, I, I know perhaps a lot of bitcoiners do but if you look at normal land no it's click click on amazon where the hell's my shit they have no idea like the, the level of complexity that goes into, first of all, building that product and then getting that product shipped out and to the destination. And so everything is on the water. Everything is coming across in containers. Truly amazing. Thank you uh, for giving up your time and uh, talking us through that. And good luck with the pod, mate. I uh, really look forward to uh, listening to more of those episodes. Thanks for stepping up. Thank you for contributing. Any of the other plebs out there who are listening to this right now, reach out to Jake. Maybe he can inspire you to start your own podcast or get you writing, singing, dancing, making videos, whatever it is. We need more and more people every single day coming into the space to help push this message forward. Please make sure you are supporting the show sponsors. You can hit up the show notes and find all of the links that you need for Swan Bitcoin for Coin Corner, for Relay, and for Bitcoin Reserve. They are all great places to go start stacking your sats. Take control of your sats. Please, guys, make sure you do that. Use the Bitbox 02 wallet by Ship Crypto and get to the conference. Use code BITTEN at checkout for a 10% discount on all your tickets. I look forward to the next show. Have a great weekend.